All right, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, if you'd open with me this morning to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 this morning, and it is Palm Sunday. It's exciting, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to share with you a message entitled, The Arrival of the King. Luke chapter 19, I want to draw your attention to verse 37, if you would follow along with me as we read from God's Word. In verse 37, it says, Then as he went down, drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is the beginning of the greatest week in the history of the world. The week that changed everything. And Lord, we pray today that you would speak to us, Lord, from your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday, which marks the first day of the Passion Week of Christ. And it's referred to as the Passion Week because Jesus willingly went to the cross in order to die for the sins of the world. And the week began with the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then it ends with His resurrection from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning. And this Holy Week is described in all four of the Gospel accounts. It was important in the life of Jesus. He had come to the earth for this very moment. When you read through the life and ministry of Jesus, here's what you come to realize, that He was living for a specific moment in time. In fact, He was living for an hour. Remember when Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, there with His disciples, attending a wedding feast, and they ran out of wine, and His mother came to Him and told Him of the problem they were having, and Jesus responded respectfully to Mary, and He said, My hour has not yet come. Then you come to John chapter 7, later on in the ministry. Jesus was there during the Feast of Tabernacles, and He was confronted by the religious leaders. And it says, They sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. Then you get to John chapter 8 and Jesus was saying some incredible things there in the treasury and once again he was confronted as he was teaching in the temple and it says nobody laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Oh, but then you come to John chapter 12 and out of the mouth of Jesus he speaks to his disciples as they're getting closer to the cross, as they're entering into the Passion Week and he said to his disciples in John 12, 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Folks, the point is the Passion Week was all a part of God's plan to save the world, which included you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, if there wasn't a Passion Week, then all hope of being saved would be lost. The Bible highlights several significant events that took place during the Passion Week, but this morning we're going to look together at Palm Sunday. 
Over the last nine months of his ministry, Jesus and his disciples had been in some 35 different areas near Jerusalem, but now they made their way directly into the city, arriving at the time of the Passover. And during the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would be overpopulated with Jewish pilgrims traveling from every direction. And during that season, the Roman government would take a census, but they wouldn't count people. They would count the number of lambs that were offered at the Passover. One secular historian whose name was Josephus, he tells us that no fewer than 10 people could have a single lamb offered for them at Passover. So it was estimated that some 256,000 sheep were offered on this particular Passover, meaning there were somewhere around 2.5 million people all crowded in to the city of Jerusalem. And due to the size of the crowds, the Romans would increase their numbers by 10 times in order to keep the peace in case there was some political uprising or rebellion. But what was the significance of this celebration of the Passover? If you've read through the Old Testament, you would know that it goes all the way back to the time when the nation of Israel was enslaved there in Egypt. And as they've been enslaved for over 400 years, God raised up Moses to come down and to lead them out of their bondage. And there was a series of plagues that the Lord allowed to hammer, really, the, the Egyptians to loosen their grip. Eventually, the final plague came, and it was the death of the firstborn. And the only way that the Jewish people could actually escape this plague was to take a lamb. They were to take that lamb that was unblemished. They were to sacrifice that lamb. They were to take the blood of that lamb, and they were to put it on their door in the form of a cross, by the way, over the top and on the side, the blood of the lamb. And the Lord said this, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Death passes over you if you are covered by the blood of the lamb. Folks, this is the significance of the Passover. Jesus Christ is now the lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And if the blood of Christ is applied to your life, then death passes over you. The death that sin brings about because of the blood of Christ were passed over. And so this is the celebration. Imagine Jesus, for 30 years of his life, he's been, he's been celebrating the Passover. 33 years, he's been going up to Jerusalem. And now for the first time, he's the lamb. He's the one that's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. On this first Palm Sunday, the time had come for Jesus to present himself to the people. And up to this point, Jesus really had only accepted the status of Messiah by implication. But this was the first time of a public demonstration, and he allowed it. There were times when Jesus would say, hey, don't tell anybody what's happened to you. Go, go and show yourself to the priest. Hey, don't say anything. Now it's like, okay, go right ahead and say it. He's the Messiah. As they prepared for entry, John's gospel records six days before the Passover that Jesus was in Bethany, which is located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And it, when it was almost time for the Passover, they're making their way up to Jerusalem. Everybody was anticipating the arrival of Jesus. They were all looking for him. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus sent two of his disciples on an errand into the town to retrieve a colt of a donkey for him to ride on. And he informed them that if anyone questioned their activity, why are you taking the donkey? Just say this, the Lord has need of it. And so the disciples went in obedience to the command of Jesus. They found the colt, they brought it to Jesus, and they were seating him upon this colt. And the Bible tells us that 
as they were doing this, Matthew tells us all these things were done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew quotes from the book of Zechariah, an Old Testament prophecy that is being fulfilled by Jesus in that very moment as he's entering into this city. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It was prophesied 500 years before Jesus ever came. Interesting how specific it was. And this prophecy, by the way, it's only one example of Jesus fulfilling over 300 prophecies in his lifetime. Say, well, how does that happen? Did Jesus say, hey, guys, what's that one prophecy in Zechariah? I need to figure out. uh, We need a donkey. I know we need a donkey. Actually, we need a baby donkey. Get a colt. Make sure it's a colt because Zechariah. No, he's just walking in fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. Fulfilled prophecy, by the way, side note here, is one of the things that sets the Bible apart from any other book that's out there, any other religious book. It sets Jesus apart from any religious leader who's come and gone. Jesus fulfilling prophecy in his lifetime. Now, some skeptic might say, oh, come on. That's not true. The Bible's not fulfilled with prophecy. Think about this. It's hard for any person to deliberately set out to fulfill prophecy that would result in a short life and an excruciating death. Moreover, how does somebody deliberately choose what lineage they're going to be born into? What time period they're going to be born into? What city they're going to be born into? How many pieces of silver they're going to be betrayed for? And how about this? What death they're going to die before it's ever even created? The Bible prophesied he would be pierced in Psalm 22 before crucifixion ever came into existence. It's no wonder that the Apostle Peter said no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation because prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. To further prepare for entrance into the city, the disciples and all of those gathered around took out their outer garments, laid it on the donkey, and laid it on the road. And by this outward gesture of laying aside their outer garments, it was in essence saying, we surrender to the king. We are, we are taking of what is ours and we are laying it down and we're letting you walk over it. We are submitting our lives to your authority and, and you can reign over us, in other words. Friend, let me ask you the question on this Palm Sunday. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Does he reign over your life? Have you set down your agenda, your will for his? Is he the king of your life? Does he sit on the throne of your heart or does somebody else? Listen, this throne in your heart and mine, it has room for one king. And it's Jesus. And so they surrendered. And then they picked up palm branches. Thus we refer to it as Palm Sunday. They pick up these palm branches that were cut down and they laid them on the ground or they waved them and they were celebrating the king's arrival and they began to rejoice and praise God and they started to sing messianic psalms. They quote from the Old Testament these messianic psalms that pointed to the Messiah who was coming, and they're waving the palm branches in the air. And Matthew tells us in chapter 21, the multitudes who went before them followed, and they cried out, and this is what they said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is what they quoted from, and the word Hosanna is a significant word. It means save now. Save now is what they were saying. But here's the problem. The salvation that the people were longing for was not salvation from their sins. It was salvation from the painful circumstances of being ruled by Rome. 
Save us now from Roman occupation. Save us now from this difficulty that we're in. Don't save us from our sin. Save us from this. Right now, there are those who are looking for a Messiah. They want to be saved from their season of difficulty, but they don't see the need to be saved from their sin. They want a political leader to save them. They want this to save them or that to save them. Listen, there's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus. Who are you crying out for to save you? Now, the religious leaders here, these people watching them, waving palm branches and referring to Jesus as the Messiah, and they, they turned to Jesus and said, hey, tell these people to be quiet. They're calling you the Messiah. I mean, what are you, what are you doing? He's tell, they say, tell them to be quiet. And I love Jesus' response. He says, listen, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. Wouldn't that be awesome if Jesus said, hey, folks, one second. We're going to let the rocks uh, give it up for a second. Just everybody be quiet. And the rocks are like, ah. I mean, what, that, what would that be like? Hosanna. You know, it would be amazing. But if you can imagine this moment, Palm Sunday, filled with joy and celebration and palm branches waving and people singing, and, and it was just this joyous occasion, the Passover, all families are gathered, everybody's there, everybody's excited. But here's the thing, it's unusual the response that Jesus has to all of the celebration. It might surprise you, because as you proceed in this passage in Luke 19, look at what it says in verse 41, as he drew near... He saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days are going to come when your enemies will build an embankment around you. They will surround you and close you in on every side and they will level you and your children within the within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because they did not know the time of their visitation. As Jesus is coming down and people are singing His praises, they're shouting, Hosanna! As Jesus looked at the city and He saw the people, His reaction, He wept over them. The people were unaware of why Jesus came. They didn't know what this was all about. They didn't know what was taking place. They didn't know what His intended purpose was. They didn't receive the Prince of Peace in this moment. And so they had no peace. The Lord was wanting to, listen, the Lord was wanting to do a work in their midst. The Lord had a desire and a plan to bring them into this place. And they didn't get it. They didn't see it. Oh, they waved the palm branches, but they didn't recognize the King. The Lord wanted to do a work in the midst of them, but it says they were unwilling. They only wanted immediate relief, but not lasting change. And Jesus wept over them. You know, as I look around the world today, I look at the nation, the church, the school system, personal lives. I believe the Lord weeps over people. And his heart's broken. This world is broken. People need peace, but they don't want to surrender. People want peace, but they don't want to repent of sin. And only Jesus can provide that peace. Many are placing their hope in so many things that will leave them only hopeless. Only Jesus can save a soul. And the greatest need in the world if you weren't aware of it, is salvation. And Jesus, he, he solved that problem. So if Jesus solved the problem of salvation, don't you know he can handle anything that you're going through in this moment? He handled your greatest problem you're ever going to have. He could take care of the rest. 
But I do believe that Jesus weeps over people's lives. He longs to come in as the king of love and give them peace and grace. Yet because of sin, there's an unwillingness to come to him. They don't want to acknowledge it or recognize it, and so they refuse it. And it breaks the heart of Jesus. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 5, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, but they are those which testify of me. And you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. You got a Bible. You know some verses, but you haven't come to me. Jesus wept over the city. But then I think what Jesus did next probably surprised so many people who were gathered there that day. Because most of the people at this point, if we're bringing in the king, we're anticipating him to go in and kick out Rome. This is exciting. Watch what he does next. I mean, and there were scriptures that prophesied that when the Messiah comes, when he comes, he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. Folks, listen, the first time he came, he came as a suffering Messiah. The second time he comes, he's coming as a reigning king. And there are scriptures that speak of both comings, but they're anticipating he's going to go in. Caesar's out. Jesus is in. That's what they were hoping for. He's going to go into the Antonio Fortress and drive these Romans out of here, reestablish us once again. But notice what Jesus does. The Bible tells us that Jesus went in to the temple. Verse 45, he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, it's written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. What Jesus did next on Palm Sunday, nobody, I don't think anybody expected it. He went into the temple area, to this area where people would gather. And basically what had happened, if you can imagine it, it was kind of like a circus meets a swap meet plus a carnival in this area that was supposed to be a sacred place, a place of prayer where people could come and seek the Lord. And all of that stopped, and there were money changers there. And what would happen, folks, is if you were making your way to celebrate the Passover, typically you would bring a lamb with you. And if you couldn't, you could purchase one when you got there. Here's, a, here's an area where you can buy a lamb. If you couldn't bring it all the way from your house, okay, we'll sell it to you. So imagine, you with your family, you're going there, you go up to Jerusalem, and you're there to buy a lamb. And you go to the guy to purchase it, and he says, oh, we, we can't accept those coins. We, the, we can't, those aren't, we, no, we can't. But, but good news, we have a money, we have, you can exchange your money over here. Oh, okay, great, thanks, I'll, I'll be back. So I go over to the money changer to exchange. If you ever traveled anywhere and you've got to exchange money, you look for, the, what's the rate? And they would hike up the rate as you exchanged your money. And, so, and they would take that. The religious leaders were behind it. And so they were taking that money of the high exchange rate. And then you go there. And then you'd have to go back and get the lamb that you wanted to purchase. And they were, here's what they were doing. They were ripping the people off in the church, as it were. And Jesus knew what was going on. And the Bible says he went in and he cleaned house. Overturned the tables drove people out i mean meek people who make jesus all meek and mild emaciated watered down wimpy jesus no way he goes in and starts throwing stuff around you know whipping you know that one of the gospels he by the way he cleansed the temple twice at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry in one occasion he made a whip could you imagine the disciples are like jesus what are we doing jesus is like i'm just uh, making something what are you making a whip. What, 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 what are you going to do with that? You'll see. You know, he starts driving people out, turning things over. 
cleansing the temple. Why? Because the ministry that was supposed to be going on was hindered. People were not able to receive because of all that was going on. The temple had been, listen, the temple had been turned into something that it was never intended to be. It wasn't supposed to be that. You know, there's some churches today that are turned into something that God never intended it to be. And so Jesus begins to cleanse, as it were, the Father's house, removing everything that was an obstacle to true worship. Drives it out, cleanses it. You know, it's interesting, folks, because at the beginning of this week, this Palm Sunday, the crowds were saying enthusiastically, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, many of these same people would be saying, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us and over our children. Let his blood be upon us and upon our families. Someone said concerning Palm Sunday that the parade was permanent in that we live with its effects, but within a week's time, it was as if the parade never happened. People forgot. Someone has asked the question concerning Jesus. Why would he ride in on a donkey? If you're the king of kings and the lord of lords, why not ride in on some noble steed? I mean, why not pick up a chariot or something? A donkey? Folks, when kings would come in peace, they would ride on donkeys. When kings came for war, they would ride on something entirely different. When Jesus Christ came the first time, folks, it was to not conquer by force, but by love, by mercy, by grace. In his first coming, he didn't come with an army and splendor, but in lowliness and humility. In his first coming, he didn't come to conquer nations. He came to conquer hearts. His message wasn't temporal peace or treaties signed but a permanent peace with God made through His blood. Have you surrendered to the King? Have you laid down your will for His? Have you allowed Him that rightful place? Has Jesus been allowed to make a triumphal entry into your heart? Because listen, folks, the Bible tells us very clearly there is no temple today. The Bible says that you, me, we, are the temple of the living God. Interesting. The place where he desires to dwell is within us. We are the temple. The church is not the building. The church is the people. And so today, the king wants to ride in to your life, to my life. And here's the question. Is there anything set up now that needs to be turned over and thrown out? That's hindering true worship. That's an obstacle to the Lord working in my life. Have you set up some temple, some, some idol, some, some table that, hey, this isn't a bad thing. But yeah, it's keeping you from actually worshiping the Lord. And Jesus wants to come in as that king and say, hey, listen, John, I, I, this needs to go. This, I need to turn this over. This needs to be driven out because this right here is hindering you from fellowship with the Father. Anything at all. Let the Holy Spirit of God search your life, search your heart right now in this moment. And the King is saying, let me come in. Let me come in. Let's renovate this place. Let's turn this over. Let's get this out. This doesn't belong here. 
The Bible says in Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Have you allowed him to come in? You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation that the Lord stands at the door of the heart and he knocks. And he says, if anybody will open the door, I'll come in. He didn't say, I'm going to huff and puff and blow. No, he said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to knock. And you can open the door and let me in and allow me to do the work that only I can do. Or you can shut the door. You know, some people, they'll let Jesus in, but they only let him into certain places of their life. Hey, Lord, uh, come on in. I just want to let you know this is your area, this part right here. This closet over here, do not open that. That's that off limits for you, Jesus. You can't go in there. But this, this part you can, and don't go into the fridge either. There's a, a, if you need anything, ask me. I'll bring it out. There's stuff in there you, don't need to, you wouldn't like. You know, or whatever. And don't touch the TV. There's some channels on there. I can't let you. I don't want to stumble you, Jesus. I mean, come on. He, it's, his, it's his house. Does he have access? Does he have room? Can he dwell there? Have you let the king of glory come in? Guys, there's coming a day when the king comes back and he's not riding on a donkey. He's riding on a white horse and he comes to make war, the Bible says. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And the Bible says that out of his mouth is going to come a sharp two-edged sword and with it he's going to strike the nations and establish his kingdom. The longer I live in this world, the more I long for that day. I'm like, Lord, just just Come. Like, we're ready to come. And I believe he's coming soon. But you know something, folks? Something else I want to mention to you. You know, this is not the last time that we see palm branches in the Bible. Not the last time. Interesting. Fast forward, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, tells us this. It says, there before me was a great multitude. This is John seeing something here in the future. A great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. And they were wearing white robes. Guess what they're holding in their hands? Palm branches. And they're waving them. And they're saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And who can measure the sum of their joy? Friend, listen, on this Palm Sunday, today, the beginning of Passion Week, the week that changed the world forever, two things I want to ask you. One, have you surrendered to the King of glory? Have you let Him, have you welcomed Him in? Secondly, is there anything today that as the king rides in to your life and mine, that he would say, hey, this, this needs to go. This needs to be overturned. And if the Spirit of God is speaking to you today, you say, well, what do I do now? What you say is, Lord, have your way. Lord, come in. I lay down my agenda. I lay down, Lord, have your way in me. Overturn this, drive this out. Change me today. I don't want to go another day, another Passion Week, just kind of going through the motions, waving the branches, but not really knowing what this is about. This is about the king coming. And if you haven't done that, 
I would encourage you just with a simple prayer. Lord, today, start in me today. Have your way in me, King Jesus.